Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to History Hack's dedicated Second World War air power podcast, Hedge Hopping, with me, Matt Bone. As this is our very first Hedge Hopping sortie, we cannot look past the aircraft that has come for many to epitomise the conflict in the air, the Supermarine Spitfire. The Spitfire looms large in our collective memory, and today we're going to look at the aircraft in some depth. To guide us on this journey, I'm absolutely delighted to welcome to Hedge Hopping, broadcaster, author, historian, and pilot, Paul Beaver. Welcome, Paul. Hey, Matt. Thank you. Really pleased to be with you. I mean, this is such a good idea. And to choose the Spitfire first. I mean, I would challenge anyone to tell me that this isn't the most iconic aeroplane in the world. And certainly at the Second World War, we ought to be talking about it more. Well, you know me, my hawker privileges kind of this is going to be you selling me as much as anything else, of course. But um, I, I suppose we need to ask, how's lockdown been for you? Lockdown two? Well, lockdown two um, is no real different from lockdown one, other than it's colder and wetter and, and there isn't as much daylight. So I, I can't do as much in the garden as I did. Uh, but that means I'm being, uh, I've been working and uh, there's a lot going on because besides doing history, of course, I also do current affairs and, and strategic analysis. So you know, it's, it's, it's a mad, mad world out there, let's put it that way. So not only have you written extensively on the Spitfire, but I, I thought I'd open with you were the historical consultant on Spitfire Factory that was on More 4 recently. Um, and in the opening of that, there was a lady about to have her first Spitfire flight. And she said, as she looked out at the aircraft, that it stood for victory and freedom. I suppose for many, she's not wrong, is she? That's, yeah, she, that's what they think of when they She's spot it. on. It's really interesting. I mean, I've, I've been lucky enough to to fly around Europe um, uh, in Spitfires. And uh, I can remember two things that, that really stand out. One is um, uh, my instructor on Spitfires, a guy called uh, Eskil Emdal, who's Norwegian. And Eskil um, and I were in um, Shevik in, uh, in Norway. And somebody came up to us and said, you, you keep talking about this as being the British saviour, the, the iconic British aeroplane, he said, for us Norwegians, this aircraft absolutely epitomises what happened in the Second World War. It gave us hope. The first aircraft to fly back, Allied aircraft in 1945, to fly um, over at Norway was the Spitfire. And that, I think, is just, uh, just all part of it. Also, I was in Bremerhaven, uh, and refueling. And a German guy came up and I said, um, I wish I could photograph taken uh, with the Spitfire. And he said, yeah, because 
you know, to us here in this part of Germany who didn't vote for the Nazi party, this is the aircraft that gave us our freedom from the Nazis. So wherever you go, I mean, you even get the French telling you that the Spitfire is important to, to, <laughs> to their lives. Um, and, you know, and Americans, I mean, the two, the two people who guard their aeronautical, quite rightly, guard their aeronautical heritage uh, closely. Um, they love the Spitfire too. And of course, both Americans and French and, uh, well, you know, uh, what is it, 60 something air forces and air arms in the world flew, um, flew Spitfires either during the war or after the war. I think that's a perfect way to introduce it. Why don't we start at the beginning mm. then? So how did a company with no fighter experience come up with this aircraft that we all hold so dear and means so much to everybody? Well, it's not luck. Um, I think there are two major factors. First of all, the Supermarine had been bought in the 1920s by the Vickers Group, Vickers Armstrong. So that meant that it was a huge um, organization with lots of money. It also had talented people. And it's not just R.J. Mitchell. I mean, there's a, a huge mystique and myth around, around Mitchell. Um, he was the, the conductor of an orchestra that was supermarine, either in the design or the technical departments or the engineering departments. And he had on his staff people like um, Elf Faddy. Um, he had Bill Fear. He had um, uh, Mansbridge. He had, um, there's a whole list of people. Um, but I suppose, and for you would, would agree, um, significantly was a Canadian called Beverly Shenston. Now, Shenston so. had got his first and second degrees in aeronautics at the University of Toronto, but he couldn't do a PhD anywhere in the British Empire on aeronautics. So he went to Heidelberg. And he ended up in Heidelberg in the late 20s um, with uh, her doctor, Professor um, Pradel, and um, who I think was his PhD supervisor. And this is the guy who was designing glider wings. So when it comes to the elliptical wing, which is absolutely fundamental to the early Spitfires, at least, you get this amazing um, uh, sort of, uh, what would you call it, pollinization of German glider wing technology that Shenston the Canadian had put in his mind. And El Fadi said to, uh, to Mitchell, you've got to employ somebody who understands aeronautics. And Mitchell only didn't like anyone with a degree. There was nobody who'd been to university in supermarine. And, he, and you know, he said, well, I, you know, we've won the, the Snyder Trophy. Um, you know, we obviously can build good flying boats and seaplanes. Why do I need somebody with a degree? And, and, and Faddy said, well, it's the maths, really. He knows how to do the maths. And, and this is where, why Shenston came in and developed the wing, why you had um, a whole bunch of people who were really good in their specific areas. There are about 150 people involved in making the Type 300 Spitfire, you know, if you like, the second Spitfire. Because we should say that the first Spitfire design, mainly by Mitchell, was a complete and total disaster, the Type 224. It had the wrong engine, the wrong design. Um, it didn't do what it was uh, supposed to do. Um, and, and in the end, of course, it was... Uh, you know, there was in the competition, uh, what is it, F-730, a fighter capable of at least 250 miles an hour armed with four machine guns, but it only, could only carry two, couldn't do 200 miles an hour. 
Um, and it was up against a Blackburn, a, a Bristol, in fact, two Bristols, the Gloucester Gladiator, another Gloucester design, a, a private venture from Hawker, um, and one from Westland. Um, in the end, the, the Royal Air Force played safe and went for a biplane, but with an enclosed canopy, uh, the Gloucester Gladiator. And Mitchell had to go back to the drawing board. And this really inspired the team at a time when Mitchell had just been diagnosed with, with cancer. And it was um, cancer of the colon, cancer of the rectum, which are just in those days completely inoperable other than master, uh, major surgery. So um, if, if you like, and this, all of this spurs Mitchell on and puts this team together, puts Al Fadi in charge of, of doing the, uh, the basic work. And the result is the Type 300, which starts to look like a Spitfire. I think that's the, the fascinating bit about Mitchell. I think that's where probably Leslie Howard has a, a, a lot to answer for. The, the, the image of, of, of Mitchell, he, 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 he was not Leslie Howard, was he? He was, he was, no, he a, was nor a northern lad. He was a lad from, from Staffordshire. Um, I remember talking to his son, Gordon, um, uh, because in the movie, First of the Few, which I have to tell you, is from start to finish, complete fiction. Um, the only good bit in it, in my, to my mind, is the superb flying of a Mark, um, it's a Mark 5B, I think, um, from High Post, just north of, of, um, uh, of Salisbury, uh, by Geoffrey Quill, which is some of the best aerial flying. So low, so good uh, in a movie. That's fab. But the rest of it is pretty, pretty much rubbish. I mean, um, Gordon said he used to cringe when, because uh, his mother was there and uh, in the movie and played by an actress who, of course, came from the home counties, dear boy, and probably went to Godolphin or <laughs> some leading school. Um, and his father, Leslie Howard, was was not a lad from Staffordshire, um, uh, and and to a certain extent that set the whole myth going about Mitchell, you know, working alone tirelessly. Uh, Mitchell was better than that. Mitchell knew that he needed the whole team together. And he conducted this orchestra is, is the best way. In, in Spitfire People, I, I call him the great conductor because I think that's exactly um, what he did. He brought his skill, his engineering skill, because he was really an engineer, not a designer. He brought that engineering skill and he took pieces from the Snyder Trophy, the S6B, the winning aircraft there. Um, and uh, it, it isn't, the Spitfire doesn't come directly from it. I mean, you can, the wings are different, the fuselage is different. But it's the first time that people really started looking at inline engines to reduce drag. And they started looking at how do you cool those engines and how do you get really good performance. We have to remember that it was only 20 years before that aircraft couldn't fly over 100 miles an hour. And there you had an aircraft that Stainforth, for example, took to more than 400 miles an hour. And that, that was 1930. That really, really changed the way people looked at, uh, uh, at, at aircraft, not just fighters. And I think that's a really important point, that, that sort of level of conductorship that both him and Cam at, at Hawkers would have mm -hmm. these great people around them that had this melting pot that created these things. It's not a single genius working himself to death um, for the greater good. Um, yeah. But speaking of that, oh, sorry, go on. No, I was going to say, you're, you're, you're absolutely right. And I think we had to look at the, without the charismatic leadership 
of of Cam and of Mitchell and these other great designers. They wouldn't have been the designs, but they couldn't do it by themselves. It just literally there wasn't enough time in the day um, to do it. So I think you have to 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 always uh, uh, aim off and allow for that. But you also have to look at at, at you know the fact that Vickers uh, Armstrong gave them the money uh, to do it. You know, and they had enough political clout to do a design, take it to the air ministry, and the air ministry say, okay, what we'll do is we'll write a specification uh, around it, F-37-34, 1934, for a, a high-speed monoplane single-seat fighter. Um, and, and it says, based on the private venture supermarine type 300. Um, you know, this, this is, you couldn't do that today. The Treasury would go bananas about it. But it's great that, you know, that they did this and they put together um, this aircraft because... You wouldn't give this aircraft to Supermarine who made flying boats. And there's a really interesting story because in 1938, the Air Ministry wrote to Supermarine and said, after you've built the first 310 Spitfires, we're going to um, give the contract to another company to build a few more. But we think that the future is in twin engine, four cannon um, fighters. And you're going to build the Bristol Bowfighter down there. So what then happens is really ridiculous, is that a civil servant sees a copy of the memo and goes, well, I won't bother to deliver any more Merlins then. So you get this hiatus in the production of the Spitfire. We could have had another 400 Spitfires in service in the Battle of Britain had there not been this hiatus in 1938. And the problem that, that, that Supermarine had is, they couldn't productionize the aircraft. Today we have, we have manufacturing engineers, we have uh, production engineers who specialize in doing this. But Supermarine had only built aircraft um, at, as a cottage industry. I mean, if you look at the RAF Museum has got a flying boat there from the Supermarine stable, that hull is the most beautiful working of mahogany you could ever see. And that's what they did. But they had to learn how to productionize. Is it, you know, it's, as I said, my first question that they were not a company that made fighters to, to any degree. They, they, this is, this is a departure for them. And, um, you know, you, you look at, I'm going to bring but, hawkers but, up again. It, they were, they were pumping them out for, for everybody at the same time. Well, they would, you see, this is the interesting thing. You have to, to look at the aircraft industry at the time, lots of small companies, and they were doing contracts around, I mean, Gloucester built Hurricanes and, you know, people built different aircraft. Um, ownerships changed. You had all of this going on. And of course, for, central to the story as well um, is Lord Beaverbrook. Um, you know, four days after Churchill takes power, he's made Minister of State for aircraft production, a cabinet office seat, and told, get it going. And he did. If you look at the figures, suddenly, um, instead of producing about, uh, I don't know what it was, say about 100 Spitfires a month out of um, Supermarine, they're into 160, then 180, then 200. And he brings in the Castle Bromwich factory, which starts, it, it's a build to print. They, they did no development work. They just built aircraft there. Um, and then you have all of that development of the Spitfire going on when the Germans dis tried to destroy and almost did the Wollstone factory in Supermarine. And they move out to Hursley in Southampton. You had the dispersed factories in Trowbridge and, and Salisbury and Reading and Basingstoke and 
um, uh, Winchester and whatever. I mean, it, the story is fantastic. Um, it, it, it really is. A lot of it, though, Matt, a lot of the story is luck and prepared minds. I mean, if it hadn't been for um, uh, people being prepared, so, so all of our aircraft factories nearly were on the, in the south. They were at Weybridge, they were at Southampton, they were at uh, Rochester. They were in, in, initially, they were in target for the French because, of course, in 1932, the threat was still the French, you know, the largest air, air force in the world. Um, nobody expected the Germans to be able to get anywhere except perhaps across the North Sea. And there was no Luftwaffe in Germany officially until 1935. So, you know, the, the threat was different. And one thing I just want to say about the Spitfire is it was not designed as a dogfighting fighter. Like the Hurricane, it was designed as a bomber destroyer. And that's why um, initially the armament was so puny, because all it was supposed to do was shoot down a bomber. And it wasn't supposed to be uh, an aircraft that got into combat, because you know, by 1936, we knew the Luftwaffe was there, but you know, Germany wasn't going to be able to fly single-engine fighters over Britain, for goodness sake. I mean, French had the largest army second largest navy and the largest air force in the world and france was resolute it wasn't going to fold in 22 days or whatever it took and that's a huge huge point which i think is in the sort of public mythology of it is that specification that that design of her is sort of counter to what we know the aircraft as being you know this you know the the, the night in the sky dancing with me-109s it's it was never meant to be that, but it be it very much became this remarkable dogfighter, which we will get back to shortly. Because there's one question I, I always love talking, especially to you about, is that initial development, because it was not a war winner out of the box, was she? No. Those few years before the, the outbreak of war was a hectic time to make her ready. Yeah, there was a lot, a lot of work that had to be done. I mean, there's a lot of mythology as well about that. When uh, Mark Summers, um, takes the aircraft up, and, and, and I think, if I remember correctly, his first flight was about eight minutes. Um, and uh, the, he came back and said, don't touch a thing. Now everyone has, thinks that means, ah, oh, the aircraft was perfect. What he meant was, don't touch anything because we need to do some work on it and we need to, to be able to tweak it from, from there. I mean, that first flight, Rolls-Royce, who, with whom um, Supermarine had a really good close working relationship, they sent people down from the car part of, uh, of Rolls-Royce. They then owned Rolls-Royce Medicals. And, and they polished the airframe and they polished the rivets. They did all sorts of things to make the aircraft fly well. Um, and, it, and it would fly faster. Um, it, to me, it's absolutely fascinating that um, this aircraft, it still looks okay. I mean, if you look at, uh, uh, at the aircraft, um, I'm going to reach behind me and get my copy of Spitfire Evolution, which, of course, every Spitfire person should have. And I trust Fantastic you Fantastic tome. Yeah, but if you look at it there, you know, the type, um, the type 300 looks like Spitfire. It's got an enclosed cockpit. It's got the Merlin engine that's in line. It's got an elliptical wing. It's got a very graceful fuselage. And that's the key. It's this using the... the, the skin of the Spitfire's fuselage to be part of the construction, which made it lighter, more agile. And the wing, the way that El Fadi had put together the wing by, by using concentric D-sections uh, to give that leading edge. This is all clever stuff. 
Um, and it's all coming from experience because these engineers and, and, uh, and designers and developers were all highly experienced. Interestingly, Mitchell came from the steam engine world. Faddy came from Parsons steam boilers up in Newcastle. You know, engineering is engineering. If you've got an engineering degree, you can turn your hand to anything. And I think that that's remarkable. But what, again, problem they had was that they, they didn't know how to put it into mass production. And we needed hundreds of these aircraft. Uh, we didn't just need um, a few. And, and it wasn't, you didn't have the time, the time to do this, this, what every other company was doing, which was making the aircraft by hand. You're using the English wheel to shape uh, the cowling. Um, all of these things that, that uh, actually today are in very short supply um, because restoring Spitfires is, is, you know, is in itself and it takes three or four years to restore a Spitfire, perhaps longer. You know, they didn't have time to do that. Uh, yeah, going off, off topic slightly, I think if anyone's ever lucky enough to get up close to an actual Second World War Spitfire and compare her to a new build, the build quality of them is quite different. <laughs> <laughs> it is. I mean, it's, it's, uh, you, you, you look at MH434, and I don't think there's a panel on her that lines up when you compare her to, to one of the new ones. Well, if you, yeah, the skill of, of um, Bigotino Heritage Hangar or Arco at, at Duxford um, is that the people working there have got the time um, and have the inclination uh, to make the aircraft better. Um, and they are. The, the, these restored Spitfires um, are the motor cars are the same. Uh, you know, they are, they are now beautiful engineering masterpieces and they really work. But I find it fascinating that uh, most of the Spitfires in, in Britain that fly are Mark 9s. Most of them have got the Packard 266 Merlin uh, engine, which originally was built in America. Um, and that I think is, is, is fascinating. We could go into all sorts of details. You know, the good news is that Rolls-Royce are getting back into heritage and are gonna look after Merlins and, and, um, uh, and Griffin engines. Uh, and that's gonna be a huge weight off everyone's shoulders because the safety um, governance of that is now in place. But yeah, um, yeah. everyone should go and see a Spitfire. Everybody has a connection with Spitfire. When I do lectures about Spitfires, people come up to me and say, they've got a connection. It might, it might have been that their parents or grandparents worked on them. Even if they've just seen one, they recognize it. But sometimes they think hurricanes are Spitfires. Which it's a bit of a problem. we won't get into, because we won't get into that, because that will upset me. Yeah, I thought so. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so the Spitfires moment really comes in, in the summer of 1940 mm -hmm. with, with the Battle of Britain. Um, we will just mention there was more hurricanes involved, but we will leave the hurricane out of this conversation. No, no, we shouldn't. Uh, we shouldn't. We should, actually, we should actually put this in context, I think. Fantastic. I'll send you the £20 for that. Yeah, no, we should. No, so so let, let's get the, um, uh, the sort of throwaway slogans out. 52% uh, of all enemy aircraft down between the 10th of July and 31st of October 1940 were down by hurricanes. And that includes Spitfires, Blenheims, uh, Gladiators, Sea Gladiators, uh, Skewers, um, uh, you, you name it. Oh, and barrage balloons and anti-aircraft guns. So, you know, but there were 39 squadrons of hurricanes because there were more hurricanes. Hurricane first flew, uh, what, a year, uh, six months before the Spitfire and was in service quicker because the, the, uh, the, 
method of manufacture was, was different. You could build three, spit, uh, three hurricanes in the time it took to build one Spitfire because it was old. It had stretch canvas over frames and it was dead easy for people to do. They all knew how to do it. Um, the key to the Spitfire and the Battle of Britain to me is we didn't win the Battle of Britain because of the Spitfire. And another myth we need to dispel. We may well have lost if we didn't have the, uh, the Spitfire. And then you get to these interesting things, um, and you get it in the Battle of Britain movie. Okay, the Spitfires take the fighters, the Hurricanes take, uh, take the bombers. Yes, no. Um, remembering a Hurricane could outturn a BF-109 or a Spitfire at low level. Um, remembering that um, the, the Hurricane kills on fighters are about the same as the Spitfire kills. Um, uh, so, you know, it's, this is not a second-class aeroplane, the Hurricane. But the Spitfire had the advantage of having a faster climb rate, something like 1,100 feet a minute, which meant in the combat climb to the patrol line um, Maidstone Canterbury from uh, Biggin Hill, you had 10 minutes to get height. It could get 15,000 feet, and the Hurricane was there at about 10 or 11. And that's where the bombers were. So naturally you go for the, for, for the bombers. The Hurricane also has its machine guns grouped. It's there four together on each wing. Um, and if you've, you've, got, you've got concentrated lead, whereas the Spitfire's got its machine guns evenly spaced, well, not quite evenly, but spaced out, distributed down the, the, the wing, which is not quite such an effective punch if you don't have your gun zeroed. Um, so there are all sorts of, uh, things like this. And, and it's probably in the Spitfire easier to see out, particularly when they started to, to change, they put the Malcolm Hood on, they started to uh, oh, um, get an Austin 7 rear view mirror um, that comes in. You know, there are lots of things. And then you get 100 octane fuel. And that's British. It's not American. It's British. The great thing the Dutch did for us in 1940, when they were, when Rotterdam was, was attacked. They loaded two tankers with 100-octane fuel from um, uh, the great oil refineries in Rotterdam and sent them to Britain. And that was enough to get us going. Um, so there are all those things. I mean, you know, it isn't just the Spitfire. It's the way you use it and, the, and what you do with it. I think the 100-octane fuel, that's probably a show in itself because... Yep. That was the difference, considering the German B4 and C3 fuels were really bitses of all kinds of different things thrown in. Well, the Germans were on sort of something like 87 octane fuel. I mean, you know, and you look at this, the Battle of Britain, which, which in itself is, is, is worth a show. The Battle of Britain, um, the Germans were using fields in France to maintain their aircraft. They didn't have the serviceability we had. The other great secret of the Battle of Britain was number one, number two, number three, civilian repair units. Um, and off the top of my head, that's Cowley. Um, it's somewhere in the Midlands and it's Glasgow, um, where they would take war-weary, battered, broken Spitfires and Hurricanes and put them back in service. I mean, old Tom Neal would say in 249 Squadron at Northweald, this is Hurricanes, um, you know, they'd have, they'd start in the morning with 12, they'd have eight left um, at the end of the day. The next morning had 12 again. How did they have 12? Because the civilian repair unit had, had worked. If you go um, to Oxford and you drive on the Eastern Ring Road, 
Um, there's the BMW factory owned by the Germans. It's actually number one civilian repair unit. Um, and the road you go on, the, the, the ring road north-south is a runway, and the road that goes past um, on the, you go over a flyover is the east-west runway. Um, and the Germans didn't know about it. The Germans, intelligence failure. The Germans did not bomb it. And there's so many things that the Germans got wrong. We've gone away from the Spitfire, I know. But it, to me, it's the context of this which, which, which is important. Remembering every German fighter pilot who was shot down was shot down by a Spitfire, even though it was blatantly clear it was a hurricane. Snobbery. And, and I, I suppose it's that psychological effect, yeah. isn't it? It, it? It's so striking. It is the, the thing. So therefore, I, I couldn't have possibly been shot down by anything different. And, and you have to remember the mystique that had started in the 30s, almost because the Spitfire wasn't entering service. I mean, it didn't enter service until August 38. Um, its first appearance was at uh, Marshalls of Cambridge um, at Empire Air Day, and the aircraft were on their way to Duxford. Um, uh, and that was the, the operational conversion unit and trials unit, number 19 squadron. Um, three aircraft went, went to Cambridge. And everyone went, wow, this is an amazing airplane. Went to Hendon after that. And we started to show off about it. To read local newspapers, like I did when I was um, uh, researching for Spitfire people, I was looking for mentions in the factory areas. Everyone mentioned Spitfires. You didn't hear a word about the hurricane. So I thought, well, I'll just see what's in in Weybridge Courier or the Langley Gazette or, or whatever, absolutely nothing. Um, and you have the Spitfire Fund. You don't have the Hurricane Fund. So you have 1,500 Spitfires um, all really coming through the Battle of Britain, um, which are bought by people spending £5,000. And I like to, to quote, you know, 23 bought by the people of Argentina. You know, neutral and not in the war. Um, there's all sorts of interesting um, pieces that, that come out. I mean, the Spitfire, as I say, touches everybody. All of us have had grandparents um, or parents or great-grandparents who gave money for the Spitfire Fund. I don't suppose there was a single person in Britain or the Commonwealth um, who didn't, and other countries as well. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well. HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. It's incredible that the, the mythologizing of the aircraft starts almost at the beginning mm. and, and only grows through it. The, the thing that always sticks in my mind is that the Battle of Britain was exactly what the Spitfire and the Hurricane were designed for essentially point defense in a coordinated system. Yeah. Um, and yet the next year, if we move forward a little bit, they're immediately centered into the same sort of environment that the Germans were operating in, exactly. which is which is rodeos and things which are not it's, what it should be used rapidly for. Mallory decides to, to lean over the channel. Um, and we lose more pilots and more aircraft um, than we did in the Battle of Britain. 
And, um, you know, some of the named Spitfires, like Moonraker, for example, the Wiltshire Spitfire from, uh, uh, from West Yorkshire, uh, from West Wiltshire, um, gets um, eight days in service because it goes off and, and, and starts going down and um, uh, across the channel and coming back, you know, as the Germans found, coming back over that water. And we were doing it in winter as well. You know, it's, it's just mind-blowing bonkers. And then we send them, of course, in 42, they go to Malta, where again, they show how good they are at point defense. And, and yes. this is what it's designed for. You know, people say, oh, the Mustang's a much better aircraft to go to Berlin, fight for 20 minutes and fly back again. Yeah, yeah, that's what it was designed for. You know, that, it, it did, that's what it said on the box. In the Spitfire box, it doesn't say that. The Spitfire box says day fighter interceptor. Yeah, this, it's that much, much maligned quote, which is, you know, the Mustang couldn't do what a Spitfire did, but it did it over Berlin. And you just shake your head and say, well, there's... Well, yes and no. And, yeah, and, and you can make a whole, you know, Merlin engine, um, the Malcolm Hood, um, all of the, um, the intakes, all the design stuff. I mean, the, 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 the Mustang, designed by a German in America with Brit technology... Um, by a, and, and flown, built by a company that had only flown train, built trainers before. I mean, there's a great analogy, actually, the, the Supermarine Spitfire of North American building, uh, uh, building the Mustang. Um, it, it's, it's amazing what you put your hand to if you're an engineer. Very much so, yeah. And I, th- I think this is a great part to talk about engines because I think for most people, the, the two Spitfires that they probably most know would be the Mark V and the Mark IX. Mm-hmm both of which had the interim tag placed on mm. them because the, the ones that were supposed to come next, the, the, the Mark III uh, and the Mark VIII, weren't ready. So let's take the Mark V to start with. Why did it have this interim tag and why did it have such longevity? Well, I look at the Mark V, actually, you know, I, 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 I'd be pretty, because I hadn't flown the Mark V, but I'd say it was probably my favourite Spitfire. It just has the proportions right. The Merlin 45 in the front is just, just slightly bigger and it just, just balances it in my mind. Um, so I really like um, five, depending on the wing, A, B, C, the, you know, um, Bowder always flew the, the A model because he liked machine guns. The B had cannon, which were more effective. Um, you know, you start looking at this, you look at the, the wing configurations on, um, on the Spitfire. You know, that's a whole subject in itself. And then you get the 9, which, which is a fill-in aircraft, which turns out, I mean, Winkle Brown said the, the 9 wasn't the best Spitfire, but it was the most effective combat Spitfire. So he flew it in combat um, over occupied France in 1943 um, because the Canadians that he was going to train um, in deck landing because they thought they might have to use the Canadian. Uh, the Canadians were highly regarded fighter pilots um, in, uh, in the middle 40s there in the middle part of the war. Um, they might have to do deck landings on carriers without any experience. So he was sent down to, to do some training with them. And, you know, he ends up, they said, well, we'll do that if you come on flight with us. And so he goes in a Mark V, he goes in a Mark IX, and gets into combat with FW-190s and stuff, which for a test pilot was really useful. But putting one of our test pilots over occupied territory <laughs> is mind-blowingly bad OPSEC. It really is. Um, but there you go. Um, so I rely 
on his diaries on this. And he believes that the nine was the, the effective aircraft. It had everything right. His favorite Spitfire, of course, was the, was the 14, um, which he just said, you know, with that, that Griffin engine, um, it, it was the best aircraft of the war. It had best fighter of the war. Um, it had a tactical Mach number that was way above anybody else, particularly the Mustang. So he rated Spitfire 14 and then the Dora, the D4, uh, Fort Wolf 190, and then the P-51D Mustang. And as a man who flew 487 types of aircraft, I, I'm, I sort of go along with his judgment on this. And uh, it, it is really, really interesting that people, and of course, more Mark 9s are actually built. I think it was 10,000, half the Spitfires built. Um, not, not, not bad for an interim Not model. bad for an interim model. And, but the thing was that this, you know, Mitchell knew in 1936 when he was terminal that the Spitfire was going to need to be replaced by something and he'd started work on a two-engine single-seat aircraft it looks very much like the de Havilland Hornet um, with four cannon in the front um, uh, as being you know its replacement he expected that replacement in 1942 well of course he dies um, in uh, 1937, just after the first flight and before productionization of the Spitfire. So we can't lay that at, at, at his door. I would highly recommend looking up the Supermarine Type 324 because that was a beautiful aircraft that, that never, never flew. And people, I think, from 44 onwards, the Spitfire was starting to show its age. Now, um, what were there after that? There were about another 50 variants of, you know, different, um, different configurations uh, but you know the spitfire's starting to to show its age and it's it's still doing a good job and then it starts to do ground attack which it really wasn't designed for i mean we've got a uh, a family connection with Rolf uh, Arne Berg, the highest high scoring Norwegianess, who dies the day after he's supposed to stop flying because he has one more go um, and takes the spitfire uh, a nine up and uh, uh, and strafes a German airfield and gets taken out by light flak. I mean, from 44 onwards, the Spitfires have been taken out by flak. They won't be taken out by fighters because the Germans didn't have the pilot skills and didn't have the fuel and didn't have the numbers um, to, to do it. And the Spitfire was, you know, was still uh, supreme. It was still a 400 mile an hour plus um, fighter aircraft. It could still turn, it could still climb. But if you look at the difference between uh, the Mark I, uh, Mark II, and up to the Mark 47 Seafire, it still looks like a Spitfire. But I remember um, the guys at Kennet Aviation at uh, Old, uh, Old Warden uh, who make, uh, who restore Seafires, telling me about the only thing that's common between the, 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 the Mark I and the 47 are the rudder pedals. Um, you know, there's not much else there that's uh, the same. And if you look at it, I'm looking at them now. I'm, um, they look like Spitfires. In fact, you look at you know the the cover of um, Spitfire Evolution's got seven Spitfires on it because I wanted to show the evolution and the teardrop canopies and the cut down rears hulls and and the fact that they put rest a hook on 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 the aircraft. I mean, the naval version, the Sea Hurricane, I have to give you, was better as a naval fighter than the Sea Fire. It's Teleno, they lost more, more sea fires on the, uh, on the three carriers um, from deck landing accidents than they did from uh, enemy action. 
there's traits of the Spitfire which don't really meld well for the sea, do it? But um, but just just to jump onto ground attack for a second with my <laughs> my fascination of 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 the role with the Typhoon, but the the Spitfire in itself is wholly misdesigned for ground yeah. attack because a lot of its sort of vulnerable bits are on the bottom. Yeah, vulnerable bits on the bottom, wing loading's wrong, um, pilot view. Um, uh, uh, just it's, yeah it's, and it's not robust i don't think it's robust enough i mean the spitfire is really good at altitude um and if you look at you know um you get some of the uh, the mark seven with the extended tip interceptions of yunkers 82 p's at thirty five thousand feet or more and you know and and, and you get tenure martindale at, at uh at farnborough taking a spitfire to forty two thousand feet to see if he can break the sand barrier in a dive, um, which he he breaks the Spitfire in the dive. Um, <laughs> the uh, bits of the aircraft fall, fall to pieces. Um, uh, but luckily, uh, he shows the skill of um, Royal Air Force test pilots. He manages from somewhere over the hog's back near Farnham to land at Farnborough on the runway with the wheels down so that they can look at the aircraft. And they discover, oh, that's really interesting. The wings have swept back. They've been forced back. Oh, perhaps that's something we should examine. Yeah, I, I, th- I think we need to get together to just talk about test pilots because those, yeah. se- especially the Second World War yeah. chaps, they are an incredible. Five hundred test pilots and flight test engineers died between 1940 and 1960. There's a memorial at Farnborough to them. This was a high a, risk business. It's a beautiful little memorial. Though, yeah. that it's which no one ever goes to. Yeah. Which is a shame. Of course, you have, uh, Phil Lucas won the, the the George Medal, bringing the prototype Typhoon back when it tried to sp- <laughs> split itself into yeah. two pieces. So I, I'm going to say something controversial here mm. because I think the big change to the Spitfire was the introduction of the Griffin, which is the next big Rolls Royce V12 power plant. I actually prefer the look of the Griffin, Ooh, the Griffin Spitfires, as, and especially the low back ones. Mm. You know the the sort of low back 14s, I think that straight line from the nose to tail and the, the teardrop canopy, there's something special about that. And um, Well, I'm looking at, at a, an FR Mark 14E with the E-wing, which is the combination of machine gun and cannon. Uh, in particular, I'm looking at this 28 Squadron um, post-war in the book. And if, if you're following the book, it's page 51. Um, and it's beautiful. It is a beautiful aeroplane. I actually, now this is heresy, I actually prefer the sound of a Griffin to the sound of a Merlin. Mm. So, you know, the Mark 19, for example, the Rolls-Royce Spitfire, you know, I think that's a beautiful aircraft. And you can, you can hear it five miles away. It's just fantastic. But who in their right mind decides it's going to go around the other way? You know, who in their right mind? Everyone's got used to um, holding the rudder down for takeoff of the Merlin because the propeller turns to the left and then you get the one that, the Christian turns to the right. So, oh, Joy Lofthouse, the most gorgeous lady who sadly passed away about five years ago. ATA delivery pilot, delivered 400 Spitfires, um, told me about her first flight in, in a Griffin, um, picking it up from Eastleigh. Nobody told her that this was different. So she, and in her pilot's notes, it just given her the speeds. You know, pilots fly by numbers. Um, you know, you want to know your, you, you know, stall, your approach speeds, all of this stuff, and you memorize them. So I can remember almost every aircraft number sort of grouping I've got. I, I have to say that 
I haven't flown for a while and I'm flying flying suits. I tend to write them down, but uh, on my flying suit. But the um, the the interesting thing to me about uh, uh, this from 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 her perspective is she said that the so she gets into into the um, into the, the Spitfire. And she gently opens the throttle as you're supposed to, and it starts to move. Oh, she's a bit strange. So she applies rudder. She applies the wrong rudder, of course, because she thinks it's a Merlin. And the aircraft goes off at 90 degrees between two hangars. And she said, This is <laughs> fine. I'd managed to get back into control. And then I saw the Southampton barrage of all the balloon cables. And she said, This is the stage when, uh, when even a lady is allowed to swear. <laughs> and um, so she, she sort of, uh, she gets airborne, gets to altitude and sorts herself out, as she said. And this is, this is the lady who said to me, when I said, can you sum up in one sentence the Spitfire? And she said, oh, yes. She said, that's, that's really easy. She said, the Spitfire in the air is a well-bred lady, not a single vice. On the ground, it's a right bitch. <laughs> and I thought coming from a 90-year-old lady, it was just, just fantastic. And it really does sum it up because you don't finish flying the Spitfire. It's not the landing. It's not taxiing in. It's not shutting down. It's when you're having your first beer in the bar that you've actually officially stopped flying it because it has a terrible tendency to do things to you. I think you know, that the myths and the, the thoughts about it is... You, you always hear the the line that you wear a Spitfire mm. as much as you fly them. Mm. These are high performance, very delicate aircraft to fly. You know, you, you flown them. What what are some of the quirks that you noticed when you were in a, a Spitfire that sort of stood out to you that maybe made you think, I, "I'm glad I didn't have to do this in combat." Oh, the, 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 there are a number of things. I mean, you have first of all, you have to remember a Spitfire is is there not for its beauty; it's there to kill. This, this is a an, an air defender. So this is designed to kill the enemy and stop them from killing us. It's a war machine. Um, and we can eulogize it and, and say how beautiful it is because today we don't need to use it in, in, in service. I think that's absolutely right. Um, there are things about it. So I've also flown the Mustang. And the first thing you notice about the Mustang is it's designed for big Americans. It's got a comfortable cockpit where, strangely enough, all the instruments and levers are in the right place. So who in their right mind decided that they, well, it's an engineer, decided that the Spitfire, um, you have to, um, on takeoff to retract the undercarriage, you have to change hands. So you take off with your left hand on throttle quadrant and your, uh, and your right hand on the stick, and you get airborne, then you've got to do something about flaps and undercarriage. That's on the right-hand side. So then you have to take uh, your left hand off uh, the throttles and stick it on to make sure you've done that friction up. Um, onto the stick and then move your right hand across and start dealing with flaps and, uh, and undercarriage in a, in a window of speed. Um, so you'll notice that even some of the great exponents of the Spitfire, like uh, uh, Rats Ratcliffe and um, Eskiel Imdell and Matt Jones, when they take off, you do notice there's a, just a little wobble. And if you're a really low-time pilot, there's a big wobble in the aircraft. As you, as you gain control again. And there are things on, on the approach as well. When you're coming into land, you've, you've really got to do this, this curving fighter approach, the, the, the sort of Winkle Brown style, getting onto a carrier deck approach, because you do, with that great nose, lose the front. And it's difficult to taxi. 
and it's got narrow track undercarriage. And the flaps have only got one setting, it's either down or up. You've got you know, a whole bunch of things like this um, to remember. But is it like, as Jeffrey Wellen would say, putting on an old and trusted overcoat? Yep, exactly. Is it exhilarating? Yep. So the most exhilarating thing I think is coming down the Friesland Islands uh, below oh, a, a certain height, seeing some people on the beach, sticking up the nose, going around, doing a victory roll and watching nice Dutch people waving at you or calling up then held a military and saying, could you fly through the military zone in order to, because you, you, you're limited on fuel. Yeah, it's possible as long as you um, fly down the main runway. And you're cleared not above 200 feet. And that sort of stuff. And, and it's like flying any, any nice old aeroplane, and it could be a Tiger Moth for that matter. It could be a Harvard, uh, it, whatever it is. If you use that in the cool sun, land information, this is Spitfire uh, request or something. Oh, Spitfire, you know. And there's a, a silence on the radio. So everyone else says, oh, it's a Spitfire around. It is, it is fantastic. And it doesn't matter if you're on the front or the back, if you're a two-seat or a single seat. If you're flying with somebody, or it's the whole mystique. You're in the Spitfire. You're looking out on the elliptical wing. And what could be better? I mean, I challenge anyone to say that it isn't inside or outside the most beautiful airplane. Because most aircraft, beautiful aircraft you fly in, don't look as good inside as they do when you're standing on the ground. But the Spitfire does. It, you know, it is, is even when it's been desecrated with, with having a second cockpit and having moved the first cockpit 89 inches further forward to maintain the CG, it's still a pretty, pretty fine looking machine. And I just don't think anyone's come up with anything quite like it in that sense. I mean, I'm a bit biased, I quite like the beaver, um, but then that's because I used to display it in the army. You know, that's, that's, that's an aeroplane built for it. If people don't know it, it's a big radial engine, high wing box with some wings on that can land in about 70 meters and on, and on floats. It's absolutely magical. L large part of my childhood was watching beavers up in the mountains in Canada. Yeah, absolutely. So you would, you would have seen them and they're still around now. Um, and, you know, I was, I'm, I'm, I'm in a movie called, uh, Immortal Beaver with uh, Harrison Ford and, and a few of us did a spent a day in, in, uh, in Downsview in Canada at Coast Blue, including we had everyone there actually. We had the, the um, whole bunch of Canadians there, uh, you, you know, and fighter races and whatever, um, Spitfire pilots all. And um, uh, we all eulogized about this airplane. It's just really a box, very big engine, it makes a beautiful noise. Um, but and we digress. So the, yeah. the Spitfire starts to run out of capacity, but we haven't talked about federal reconnaissance. We haven't talked about no. making the wing wet into a Bowser, so you can fly from Benson to Pienemunde on the Baltic coast, uh, spend 12 minutes photographing, come back over Berlin, still have some film, so take another two minutes of film down the centre of Utterden Linden or whatever, and then just about, because the wind's changed, um, managing to get to Martinshaw Heath in, in Suffolk. And that's not unusual. It's almost an everyday occurrence. And, you know, if, if it weren't for Spitfire PRs, we wouldn't have known about the V1, the V2. We wouldn't have known a lot about what was happening in Normandy. And then, you know, the, the, the beautiful FR Spitfire photographs of going down the beaches in the Pas de Calais in Normandy 
as German troops at low tide are fitting the, the dragon's teeth and the Belgian gates and, and all this stuff and seeing them all run. And this is you know, live footage, or live footage, it's timed footage from, from the Spitfire uh, as it goes down. So few of them were shot down. They had to be ambushed to be shot down. Uh, it, it is remarkable. So, you know, it does, it's not just niche, it is pretty much all round. There weren't uh, hurricane PR versions, of course, but they did have tank busters. So I'll give you that. And, and of course, just to keep, keep Hawkers end up here, the, uh, the Typhoon did have a attack our version, even though there's only six of them. I can throw that in as well. Mm-hmm. They did put a camera on it. It wasn't very good because it was vibrating too mm-hmm. much. I couldn't get a picture out of it. I, I think probably in this t- strange 2020, the most you know, visible Spitfire is a, is a PR Spitfire, is L, Arco's uh, NHS mm. Spitfire, which I think is, has been doing sterling work all year with, with, with raising money for, what a brilliant for the idea. NHS. What a brilliant idea. Yeah. What, is, what is fundamentally our, our icon today is National Health Service. It's, it's our religion. What was our religion 80 years ago? The Spitfire. Bring the two together. I mean, John remains brilliant at, at putting that together. You know, when I first heard about it, I went, oh, yes, I wish I'd thought of that. It is so good. It is so clever. It is so the right thing to do. But we do see Spitfires, and of course, it's been really sad. You know, I'm a flying display director. We've had no or very few flying displays. Um, I do a lot of work for the Boltby Flight Academy at Goodwood. And there's been very little work that's been done, which is so sad because we love the Spitfire. I've had a, a few lucky lucky associations having worked on the Typhoon is, but it's there's something special about being at an air show when the sp- first Spitfire of the day a fires up and then flies past because everything does stop and everybody watches it. Everybody has a smile on their face and it's, it is. And, and there are now more flying Spitfires. Well, there will be when we start flying again, because a lot of them are, are, are grounded at the moment. Because, you know, if you're not flying, there's no point in, uh, uh, in ensuring your aircraft, etc. There are now more flying Spitfires than there were five years ago, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 20 years ago. And there will be more. There will still be more. You know, if you look at the Spitfire factory, which is what you best can describe, uh, Bigger Hill Heritage Hanging. I mean, you know, that, that uh, TV series that's just been on really shows that. You know, there they are this year. What have they got? They put a, a, um, uh, a Greek aircraft back into the air. They put um, uh, a Russian aircraft back into the air. Um, they've worked on BBMF aircraft. They've done, you know, they're still doing flights. You know, um, that's real Spitfire City at Biggin Hill. And if you live anywhere near, I'm sure you, you know, you're, you're used to seeing it. You live in Seven Oaks, you have Spitfires all the time. I was down um, the Capital of Fern, Battle Britain Memorial, just before the second lockdown, um, filming a podcast for the Army Flying Museum on the Spitfire, on the Battle of Britain. And uh, I was standing there doing a, a piece to camera. And I heard this, this noise. And, and there's there's a Biggin Hill Spitfire. It comes hurtling across the top. I mean, you know, what can you do except go, oh my, there's a Spitfire. I wish I'd planned that, but I hadn't. And, and, you, and just watching it and then get back to uh, talking about the Battle of Britain. I'm glad to say it's, uh, it's in the programme. Wonderful. There's a couple of questions really mm-hmm. that, because our, our, our love for the aircraft wasn't really there in the middle 50s when she stopped stopped her service with the RAF. What happened to them all? This, this, 
<laughs> this is the question we, we get with the typhoon a lot is why why did we get rid of them yeah well why do, guess... why do we you know why do we get rid of everything um room expense people tend to not bother there must have been twelve thousand spitfires left at the end of the war we sold some you know places like burma and thailand and the french and Nearly all the European air forces started again with Mark 9s, taking them from their squadrons and being formed you know, the French 340 series squadrons or uh, the 320 squadron, uh, series squadrons, the Dutch and the Belgians and the Norwegians. And, but then people, I think people were fed up with the war in, in, in the end of in the 40s, wanted to get rid of it onto the jet. You know, this is the new place to go. Let's just get rid of them. A few sensible people kept some bits and some spares. But I can remember when there was probably only one Spitfire left flying, Gulf Alpha India Delta uniform, I think. Um, I remember as a, just about a teenager, controlling my mother to drive me to somewhere to see it so I could, I could put it in my logbook of airplane numbers because like all good uh, historians, I started as a register spotter. Um, and I think you look at all of that and you, you say, well, why didn't we keep more? Well, luckily, you know, at Biggin Hill, they kept three Mark 19s, which became the backbone of the Battle of Britain Memorial Flight, and they found others. We're able today to take them off. Um, there's not a plinth with a real Spitfire left, I don't think, anywhere, perhaps South America, perhaps in Burma. But, you know, aircraft in India, the Indians have got their Spitfire. If it isn't flying, it's about to fly. Everyone wants a Spitfire now. If you look at some of the pictures of aircraft graveyards, why didn't we keep some of the German aircraft? Some of those amazing technology designs that we could use as teaching tools. Because one of the, things, the great things about the Spitfire is if you, like me, are rather enthused about teaching children about engineering and, and maths and, and technology and science, STEM, the Spitfire is a really good thing to do. And, and to take them around the Spitfire and get them cleaning it so they get to understand the lines and, and, and this sort of thing. You know, when, if that's allowed, I'm never really sure if these things are. Get them in, you know, up close and personal. I, I think that's important. We took uh, the late Mark Hanna and a group of us took um, some aircraft to Poland in 1997, I think it was. And in Demlin, I think it was, the... Um, we had, we had little old ladies breaking through the crowd. There were no barriers. People hadn't thought of that. Little old ladies breaking through the crowd and would, would, would sort of shuffle up to the Spitfire, touch it, genuflex, and, and say, tack, tack, you know, um, because they saw it as the liberation um, of their countries. And, and, you know, even with all of that, we destroy Spitfires. So we destroy Spitfires in interesting ways. The, uh, the Ministry of Supply decided that there would be too many engines around. So they, they would destroy the engines by running them with the, um, uh, the sump cap off so that they would leak oil and seize up. Or I remember the late Jim Pierce um, saying that when he was uh, delivering Spitfires to St. Athen, he was told, if you, if you um, don't make the first approach and you are are at all concerned, go out over uh, Cardiff Bay at 5,000 feet and jump out because we don't need the Spitfires anymore. You know. and, and today, people are finding Spitfire wrecks to get the plate so they can rebuild the aircraft because Peter Monk at, at Biggin Hill can rebuild you a Spitfire around a plate. 
And so if you have a plate, you've got a Spitfire. It's that forward-looking, I guess for me, it was always that forward-looking moment, isn't it? That you know, let's let's move on. We have we have something new and let's forget about the the, the, the darkness that is that is yeah. that had overtaken us for a second. Well, we're still doing it today. I mean, um, if people talk about restoring aeroplanes to flying condition, you, you could easily do the, that generation up to about the Spitfire because they're easy to maintain and easy enough to fly. The, the, the Hurricane, you need no more than 100 hours of tail drag flying to safely fly a hurricane solo because there is, well, there is a two-seater now, but there wasn't a two-seater a few, to a few uh, months ago. So you can, you can do that. You can't do that with a modern aircraft. And Bruntingthorpe's found that, that problem. The Royal Air Force have found the problem with keeping old aircraft, the Vulcan classic example. You just can't do it. We could have done more. I wish we'd kept more First World War aircraft. But, you know, people are rebuilding them. I saw the other day somebody's rebuilding a Vickers gun bus from scratch, yes. from the plans. And you think, oh, bloody hell. Well, first of all, you think, why? Secondly, you think, <laughs> is this guy won the pools with must be costing a fortune? But it's people are keen. Aeroplanes should be in the air. If they're museum examples, they should be like Duxford and Bigham Hill and, and uh, other places do, Cywold does, is you put these aircraft into the air. I don't agree with this, we put it away and polish it. Uh, in, a, in, a, in a museum. Uh, Aeroplanes are designed to fly. Tanks are designed to drive. Ships are designed to go on the sea. There's something different about an aircraft that actually flies. You compare yeah. a Spitfire to one in, say, at Hendon to one that's at Duxford, which has a little bit of oil dripping out of it, has that wonderful, wonderful smell. Yeah. There's, it's night and day, really, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And I don't care what people say about, oh, well, it's not, it's not an original Spitfire because it's had the wings have been redone or whatever. No, it's it's not, but it's done with the same loving care and actually it's probably safer and will last longer. I mean, what does the RAF say that the Lancaster will last another 50 years? You know, great. That means my grandchildren um, will see it. I don't think I will. I'll be very old. Um, but, you know, my grandchildren will. So that's good. To all those who are, who are keeping these aircraft in the air, thank you so much. Oh, absolutely. It doesn't matter who you are, whether you're in the service or civilian or, or all these volunteers that help there's some really great people out there but i would say transfer your skills to a new generation please you know apprentices and, and whatever we need people to keep these going because of my generation we're now getting on a bit definitely and there's there's incredible opportunities for, for young engineers um in aviation whether it's historic or, or or modern if if you're listening and you're interested just Google it because there are a lot of apprenticeships, especially now that are that are being funded. But I think that's that's a great place to start wrapping this up. Uh, Paul, thank you so much. That has been wonderful fun. And I must say, you have a new book coming out, which I'm very excited to read about Winkle Brown. When will we when will we be able to get our hands on it? Not for a little while, not to 2022, because um, I'm a victim, as so many other people are, of uh, of the slowdown in the publishing business. They're basically publishing their backlists and, and the books they've already got in print. Um, so it won't be till 2022. Um, but I'm busy working. I'm, I'm looking at doing a few other projects book-wise at the moment. And th there's always something to write about, which is the great thing. And always something with, with a bit of the Spitfire. So I, I contribute to the Spitfire Society magazine a lot. Um, so if you're not a member of that, you ought to be. There's also, of course, the Hurricane Society. This is the Typhoon Society, yet, is it? There, there is. Yeah. There is a group that already is. The Hawker Typhoon Preservation Group. Okay, you can it? visit them at 
hawker-typhoon.com. They're doing great work. So, you know, there, there are all these, these places out here, and we're always looking for, for new and interesting stuff. And uh, I keep finding it. There's a brilliant company up in, uh, up in Lancashire, CTM Motorcycles, who are building Spitfire motorcycles, and you can have your motorcycle um, in the colours of a Spitfire. And, and I'm the guy that, that, uh, that tells you the colours that you can, or, you know, you, you come to me and say, I'd like it to be. I come from St. Austell, so I'd like the St. Austell and, and, uh, and District Spitfire markings, you know, which was a, happens to be a, a Mark 7G PR aircraft that was painted pink. And the guy went, pink? Yep, Fred, so PR pink. So... You know, it takes all sorts. If he, if he actually goes ahead with it, he'll be, um, I think, a very brave biker. But still, re- real men are not afraid of pink. Thank you so much for that, Paul. Like I said, uh, the Winkle Brown book is out in 2022. We have not finished talking about the Spitfire. We will be back, hopefully, with, with more guests to talk about her legacy soon. But watch this space on that. To everyone who's been listening, thank you very much. And Matthew Bone signing off. And please remember, it was the Second World War. It was not a sequel. Thank you very much. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 